Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. Five years ago now, in 2018, I saw an incredibly revealing post stating the following about Christian maturity. After 10 years of research, the Lifeway Company, a book company uh, down in Nashville, observes two specific traits regarding Christian maturity. Number one, Bible engagement is the number one spiritual discipline for growth. Why did it take a 10-year study to figure that out? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I feel like we've, we've figured that out, right? By God's grace. Number two. Bible engagement affects every other spiritual discipline. Meaning this. People who get, engage the Bible, they give more. They go more. They evangelize more. They serve more. They love their fellow believer more. So I think both of those demonstrate a significant point. We need to personally engage the word. You need to. I need to. We all need the word. So consider with me for just a moment this morning as we begin. A couple of questions. Number one. What kind of time did you spend in the Word this past year? 2022, what did you read? How far did you get? What was your plan? The best plan for failure is not to have a plan at all. A plan is not in and of itself sanctifying in some way. A plan just gives you something you're shooting at. It's a target, right? And in truth, even if you don't hit the target, very likely you got a lot farther than you would have without a plan. So how'd you engage the word this past year? What does the time that you spent demonstrate about your own personal passion, your own love for God and for his word? How does your lack of time in the word impact your own personal walk with the Lord? How how has your walk with the Lord been helped or maybe hurt because of your time in the Word this past year? I want you to take a moment and genuinely contemplate those questions. How did you engage the Word this year? And how did it impact your life? Now what I want you to note with me as we walk through this text today is this. You and I, we can endure in 2023, through the ongoing power of the word in our lives. Now, what I love about that is I feel like in some ways that endurance kind of comes out of this particular section of Psalm 119. And in part, I love that because we spent so much time in Hebrews in 2022. Uh, A book that reminds us of God's call to endure as believers. Well, how are we going to do that? Through the word. Right? The author of Hebrews reminds us of that on numerous occasions. Now, as we look at the Psalms, it's imperative that we understand 
this literature. Every single book of the Bible is not the same. Some of them are written differently. Some of them are narrative. I don't know that you know this, but three quarters of your Bible is a story. Well, that's significant that you understand how to engage a story, right? And that's why we've spent so much time together in the Gospels. This is not a story. This is Hebrew poetry. Now, for most of you in this room, when I say poetry, you think back to your English classes in high school. Uh, maybe you think back to your one true love in high school who wrote you that wonderful poem, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, blah, 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 right? But when we say poetry, that is what most of you think of. Listen carefully to me. That is not Hebrew poetry. That's not what's happening here. Hebrew poetry is very different. It has nothing to do with rhyme or meter. It's not about that. English poetry is about that, right? Uh, which is why most of my poems didn't go very far. I just couldn't figure out that rhyme thing, you know? But Hebrew poetry, I think I could have done that, you know? Because it's not about that. Hebrew poetry is about parallels. So, in every single verse that you note throughout the Psalms, most of Proverbs, even Job in places, Ecclesiastes, what you have are parallels. You have an initial statement with a follow-up statement. Now that follow-up statement fits into a variety of categories. Sometimes that follow-up statement is just synonymous. It just repeats exactly what he said in the first statement. Sometimes it develops the first statement, and that's what we have most of here. We have one verse, verse 103, that's synonymous. All the rest are synthetic, meaning it's just a development in the second phrase. So that's Hebrew poetry. It's parallels, parallels. Who's the author? Well, the author of Psalm 119 is debated. We don't have a name. Uh, we don't know who wrote this. Very likely, it's somebody from within the priestly group of Ezra. But what I love about Psalm 119 is the detail. It's the work that the psalmist puts into magnifying the word of God. This is the longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses. But do you know, for a Hebrew-speaking individual, how easy it would be to memorize this chapter? We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the entire chapter focuses on the Word. 176 verses. Every single verse, I think there might be one or two exceptions, mentions the Word. And several of them mention it more than once. So we have more than 176 references, descriptions of the word. And what the psalmist is demonstrating to us is his own commitment to the word, but it's also the commitment that we should have to the word. It also reveals to us, explains to us, uh, shows us the character. It shows us what the word is like, what it's about, its significance, its power. And we'll see that again in our section today. So Psalm 119, it's composed of 22 stanzas, or strophes, you can call it. Each one has eight 
verses. If you look at your Bible, most of you have a squiggly line and then a name behind it, right? For this particular section, it's a a weird looking uh, uh, symbol, kind of like a box with some corners on it, right? And then the word "mame." That is the Hebrew letter. Now, why why does all why do all of our Bibles have that? It's because every single one of the verses from ninety seven to one hundred four begin with that Hebrew letter. If you look at Psalm 119 in the Hebrew Bible, it's fascinating. Because the first eight verses all begin with Aleph. The next eight verses all begin with Baith. These eight verses all begin with Maim. It's, it's crazy, right? I mean, think about the work that the psalmist went to to tell you, look at how amazing your Bible is. Right? Now, you all are not as excited about that, I feel like, as you should be. (laughs) So I'll move on. But I'm telling you, it's, it's pretty cool, okay? So again, as we walk through this, you and I, we can endure in 2023 through the ongoing power of the Word. And we'll see that throughout this text. So the first thing that I want you to note, verses 97 to 100, we see the Word offers superior training and instruction. The uh, the training and the instruction that we gain from the word is just better. Now, initially, some of you, depending on your field of study, depending on your expertise, and to one degree or another, everybody kind of has one. But depending on that, you may initially say, well, come, come on, the Bible can teach me better about what I do. No, no, no. The Bible can teach you better how to do what it is you've been trained to do. You'll be better at what you do if you do it in light of the truths found in God's word. Right? That, that's the point. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But this entire section hangs on this first verse. Oh, how I love your instruction. I love your Law, some Bibles translate it. The psalmist begins with that love of the Torah, the law of God, literally the instructions of God. Now this word is used many, many times throughout the Old Testament, or more than 200 times. And the Torah is used to describe the first five books of the law throughout the Old Testament, throughout even in the New Testament. So it's always describing specifically the instructions of God for mankind. Now Psalm 119, it actually begins, the whole psalm begins with this same focus. Actually the same word, verse 1, he says, How happy are those whose way is blameless. Why is their way blameless? Because they walk according to the Lord's instruction. Same word. And now, later on, in this same psalm, he says, Oh, how I love those instructions. I love these instructions. And he's going to fill that out a little bit more in a moment. But he begins with this love, this genuine affinity, affection, desire, longing, delight in the words of God. Listen to me. Is that how you think of the word? And, 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 And what I'm saying is not... Every day when you get up and you're trying to clear the fog away, you're thinking in your mind, I just can't wait. Some days when you get up, you're thinking, I just don't have time. I'm kind of overwhelmed. Right? I I don't know. 
But deep down, when you take a moment and you consider, there is this longing, there is this delight in the word. Right? Is that true for you? Do you love God's word? Do you have a genuine longing for the word? Do you delight in it? Are you drawn to it? Now listen, those questions are not a test of your salvation this morning. They are a test of what you're drawn to. The reality is all of us have appetites and all of us are feeding them. What are you feeding? For some of you, the issue today is not whether you are a believer or not a believer. The issue is what appetites are you feeding As you feed this appetite, it will grow. Your delight, your longing for it will grow and you'll be transformed by it. Do your daily habits reflect a genuine love and desire for the word? Folks, we don't have to go very far. Go back to last Monday. From Monday to yesterday, do you delight, do you long for the word? How did you engage it? We need God's word. And you might say, you know what? I, I, I don't long for it like I should. Wonderful news. There's grace. There's grace for that. God can help you to long for it the way that you should, right? But the psalmist is going to go on and he's going to give us a little, little bit more info at the end of verse one. He says, it is my delight all day long. Now again, Initially, for us, we think, now there's a standard I'm not going to match, right? There, there's a, how am I going to get to that? It's my meditation all day long. Now, for, for many of us as believers, depending on your background, depending on where you grew up, there's a couple things that I want to take just a moment and clarify as we move into this issue of meditating all day long. For some of you, again, depending on your background, you've kind of been trained that engaging the word is about sitting down, maybe in your chair, maybe at the table, maybe with a cup of coffee. I remember many years ago hearing an evangelist say that. I get up every morning and I get my Bible and I have a fresh cup of coffee. And for for a long time I was thinking, okay, you know, it's spiritual. You've got to have your cup of coffee and your, your Bible. You know what I'm saying? Listen, there's all kinds of things that get into our heads as to what this is, Right? But what I want you to consider today is that it doesn't necessarily mean I'm sitting down with a physical copy. Now, I'm not telling you not to do that. What I am telling you is there's more ways to engage the word than just that. Right? So think through this for a minute. Do you understand that for the most part, your Bible was written to be heard? Your Bible was written to be heard. Literally, the first century church, Paul did not have a Xerox machine and he'd make 97 copies and ship them off to Ephesus. It's not how it worked. Paul sent a letter and people sat on the edge of their chair saying, man, where's where's Paul? What's going on with Paul, right? And Paul sends this letter to Ephesus and says, okay, so let's walk through this. Here's what the church is. Here's what you have as a believer. Here's how it should impact the way that you engage with one another. And they listened for 35 minutes as somebody read the letter. And everybody, they're listening. And they're thinking. And when they finish, they talk about it. Okay, what are we going to do with that? How, How do we do this 
tomorrow when we gather? How, how do we put this into practice next week when we gather? What, what do we do with this? You know the friction that's been there between our Jewish believers and our Gentile believers? Boy, we need to work on that. We need to fix that. Right? Because we're one. Chapter 2. We're one. But it wasn't because they had a physical copy and highlighters and pens and bookmarks and multiple translations and commentaries and footnotes. and It wasn't that. They heard it. So there's times in our lives, especially I think of moms, young moms at times, right? What do you do with Junior when Junior's screaming, right? Put him down and let him scream because it's more important for you to sit with a physical copy and your highlighters and your pens and do your, do your time with the Lord. No, it actually might be better for you and for him to listen to the word. And sometimes you'd be surprised how much of it you can get through, how quickly you can get through it. But there's real value in rehearsing the word through hearing. Do you realize how quickly you could memorize the word if you listen to one book? Say a small book like Philippians. You listen to that book every day. You know how long it takes you to listen to that book? About 15, 16, 18 minutes, depending on the speed that you listen to it. A day. You realize in two weeks how much of Philippians you'd know? How well acquainted with that book that you would be. But for many of us, we don't think about that. We use our phone as a listening device for all kinds of other things, right? Uh, Some of you, you may know about them, you may not know about them. Podcasts, right? Some of you listen to all kinds of different podcasts. Have you ever considered listening to the Word? There's real value in hearing it. Now, I'm not saying don't read it. But I am saying there's value in allowing the word to come in through hearing. There's almost pieces you'll grab that you don't grab reading. The key is, I love the word enough, I'm going to engage it. However I can do it. And there's times of life that are different. So we have to engage it maybe a little bit differently. But the key is to engage it. Prioritize the word in your daily life. So... Part of that, I think, meditation then, is this contemplating the word. Hearing the word, reading the word, and then considering. Now, the word meditate's an interesting word. For most of us, when we think of meditation, we think of sitting quietly, our eyes closed, maybe somebody that's humming, you know, uh, some weird sound that they're making, you know, it's supposed to be humming, but maybe it doesn't sound like that, I don't know, sounds painful, you know. Uh, That's not meditation necessarily. Meditation is literally the idea of kind of talking through with yourself what this means. How what you've engaged with should impact the way that you live. The word literally has the idea of talking to. So there's this outward, inward contemplation. What do I do with the words of God? How should the words of God shape my reactions today? How should the words of God shape my responses to my loved ones, to my coworkers, to folks I engage with in the community, to folks who are driving too slowly in front of me? We'll take that as a confession. (laughs) 
That's, that's, those are the moments I need the word. It's a lot of bad drivers in South Bend, and there are statistics to prove that. It's true. So how do we engage these truths? We have to contemplate what we're supposed to do with them. It doesn't mean we change the word to mean what we want it to. It means we understand the word in its context, but then understand that it relates to our context as well. It relates to our lives. It relates to our responses. The word applies to you and to me every day. So how are we engaging the word? Are we meditating on these truths, allowing them to truly impact our lives? Now, he goes on in the next three verses and he gives three specific examples. Those three examples, the way that they're written, it almost sounds as if he could be being a little bit disrespectful to his teachers and to his elders. And I don't think that's what he's saying. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But he says, initially, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, verse 99. I have more insight than my teachers, than all my teachers. And verse 100, I understand more than the elders. These are just the wise people around me as the word elders here is what it's describing. Those who should know how to live, those who should know how to engage, I have more wisdom than them. So the three of these kind of collectively are working together. So again, initially it sounds a little bit maybe like he's being arrogant, kind of displaying a superior attitude to his teachers and his elders. Certainly his enemies, that doesn't seem wrong. But I don't think that's his point. Uh, The way that this is written in Hebrew, you can actually kind of flip-flop those phrases, and it kind of makes it out like the, the instruction that I've received from my teachers, I'm going beyond that. I'm adding to that. I'm completing that because of the influence of the word. And so ultimately the point of all three of those verses is simply this. God is the great teacher. His law is far superior to every other teacher. And folks, truthfully, every other discipline. There are a variety of disciplines in this room. There are a variety of skills. There are a variety of expertises, if we could say it that way. And yet, each of us is better. Each of us is more complete. Each of us will be better at what we've been called to do because of the impact of the word. That is the power of God's word at work in our lives. Whatever he may have learned from his human instructors, the word of God, it's kind of this advanced curriculum for living. And that's why no matter what we do for a living, this curriculum best instructs us how to live as we do whatever it is God's called us to do. And that comes by contemplating, considering what has God said? What's God called me to do? How has God called me to respond? The psalmist is rightly acknowledging here that God is the great teacher. He's the great instructor. Instructor, His law is supreme. It's superior to all of the other instruction that I may have been given. And therefore, knowledge alone is not enough. There's a myriad of people in this room who are incredibly intelligent, incredibly gifted. Uh, You've studied, you've worked, you have advanced, you've grown in your particular field. And yet, 
we learn, I think, from those three verses, knowledge isn't enough. Faith in God's word, a commitment to obedience, that is what brings spiritual insight and real wisdom. Real wisdom for daily living comes from the word. And it impacts even what we do. So this text provides really even in some ways a helpful comment for a text like Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, which warns us not to glory in what? Wisdom and human strength, but instead to glory in the fact that we know God. That's what we should glory in. And folks, if we're not careful, and all of us do it. We glory in the stuff we've learned, in our accomplishments, in our advances. That's what we Glory in, and yet the Bible reminds us that's not where the glory really is. It's in knowing the Lord. So all three of these speak to the benefit of this deeper study of the word. He begins in verse 98 with commands. He says, your commands, they're always with me. And because of these commands, I'm wiser than my enemies. Now the idea of this word wiser is it's a manner of Thinking, it's an attitude uh, concerning the experiences that all of us have in life, including matters of general interest, including matters of morality. It concerns wisdom in secular affairs. It, it, it concerns wisdom, skills even in the arts or moral sensitivity or experience in the ways of the Lord. All of that impacts my daily living, my daily interaction. And the beauty is the psalmist reminds us this wisdom doesn't dry up. There's no end to this class. There's always more to learn. The Bible is this inexhaustible fountain of wisdom and knowledge. And the more we know of our God, the better we can engage our world. He goes on in verse 99. Your decrees are again my meditation. Now, now, not every time you see the word meditation in the Old Testament is it the same word, but here it is. Meditation in verse 97 and meditation here are the same. It's having insight, comprehension. It consists again of meditating on the word. God and his word are the ultimate instructor for life. And so because of that, I'm focused on them. I'm giving myself to them. He goes on in the last verse. And he says, I'm wiser than the elders. Why? Because I obey. Speaking literally, the idea of that word obey, it's to protect or guard or preserve. So literally what the psalmist is saying is, I understand the words of God and I take hold of them and I guard them personally. They're mine. I preserve them. I, in essence, I'm clinging to them and living them out. And that's why the CSB translates this. I obey them. These words impact me in such a way that I actually do them. True wisdom does not necessarily depend on a lifelong experience, but rather it depends on obedience to these precepts of God. 
This is where real wisdom comes from. And that's why even a young man, and we've seen it on multiple occasions throughout Scripture, Joseph, Daniel, they impress much more aged rulers. Why? Because of their real wisdom. Wisdom they've got from God. Do we, do we live in light of that wisdom? Meditating on the truths of God absolutely will transform your life. And obedience will always impact your real, daily, practical living. It makes you better at what you're called to do if you implement God's truth. The psalmist continues. He continues in verse 101 and 102. Again, he's focusing on the word and here the offer of strength and guidance to avoid evil. And that's again the theme. You can see it in those Two verses, I have kept my feet from the evil path. I have not turned, verse 102, from your judgment. So again, both focus on strength and guidance to avoid evil. And there's a myriad of evils. For many of us, when we think of evil, we have a particular thought in our mind. And for most of us, it's something that we don't do. Right? Whatever it is I don't do, that's evil. But folks, the truth is, all of us are bent to evil. And so we need the word of God to transform and shape us so that we avoid this. And this will be his theme, a theme that comes back up again in verse 104. We'll look at it again in a moment. The idea here is that the word of God has the capacity to protect you, to guard you from evil. Right? This is Psalm 119 verse 11. How does a young man change his way? How does he not do evil? By taking heed to your word, right? You and I need the word. And literally, the word has the ability to protect you, to shield you, to guard you from evil. So the verse reminds us that keeping God's word is something that is incompatible with treading an evil path, with going the wrong way, with sinning. These two don't go together. If I'm honoring the word, if I'm meditating on the word, it actually has the ability to protect me from sin. In verse 102, similarly, you won't turn away from God's judgments if you are committed to the word. I love verse 102. I kind of discovered this as I was working through this text. Here he presents to us the master teacher again, our God through the word. And it literally says there in the end of verse 102, he says, for you yourself have instructed me. Now, I want you to get this. I'm going to try and explain this word a little bit more than I have most of the others. But I want you to grab what this word means. It has a massive implication for us. All right. So a couple of things that are implied in this word. Number one, the word instruction here, it presupposes a relationship between two personal entities. We have an instructor and we have a student. We have a teacher, we have a learner, right? So that's the implication. And you and I understand we're not in the teacher role, right? God is in that role. We're the learner. Those are the two entities. Now, here's the expectation. The instructor actually possesses, he claims authority over the student. The recipient of the instruction, he has or should have a level of expectation from the instructor. 
When I come and sit down before this instructor, I'm thinking in my mind, he's going to teach me something. Have you ever gone into a class and you're expecting that? Most freshmen and sophomores, they don't feel that. Juniors and seniors, they start to get there, you know? They're, they're kind of, they're in their thing now and they're coming to class expectantly, right? Freshmen and sophomore, they're walking in and they're saying, how long do I have to be here? That's, that's not the relationship that we're talking about here, right? This relationship I'm expecting. Now think this through for a moment. How many times do you go to God's word not expecting to find something? How many times do you engage the word thinking in your mind, I'm supposed to do this. Hopefully it'll go quick. Hopefully, maybe I'll stumble onto something. No, no, no. Listen, that's not the relationship. For us as believers, as we approach God's word, the approach is God has something for me today. Okay, Lord, show it to me, right? You think that? You ever approach God's word that way? Listen to me. If you haven't, try it. It changes the way you engage the word. It transforms the way you engage the word. When you approach God's word with that expectation, guess what? You'll find something. Especially when you stop at the beginning and say, God, you're the teacher. I'm the student. Please show me something. Please help me. I need grace. I need, I need to know you better today. Will you show me? That expectation changes the way we approach the word. And most believers personally Never approach the word like that. And that's why the word for many believers is a dead book. It really is. Maybe they'll get something when their pastor talks about it, but for them personally, this is a dead book. That is not the intent of God's word. God intends to speak to you, his people, every day through the word. Approach it with that expectation, a readiness to receive. God is ready to give. The riches that are here in this book are innumerable. They're unimaginable. You can dig deeply for a lifetime and barely scratch the surface. There is much. But you have to approach it with the idea that it's there. Will you receive it? As you regularly, faithfully approach God's word, is that your thought? Do you go expecting God to speak? Or is this a duty? You're fulfilling a duty, you're checking it off of your box, but rarely do you come away with much. That's not God's intent for your engagement with his word. His intent is is that we would be instructed Last of all, the psalmist addresses, finally, the word offers greater pleasure than the false way. Now, in some ways, this connects to verses 101 and 102 because the word protects us from that false way. But now the psalmist, in a sense, he develops that a little further and says, hey, listen, the word's better than the false way. it's, It's better. Verse 103, again, he says, how sweet, right? Like honey. It's sweeter than honey in my mouth. And verse 104. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore. Therefore. And that that is very important. We'll talk about that 
in more detail in a second. But therefore, I hate every false way. So a couple of things are true here in these two verses. First, attraction to the true. Attraction to what is true versus a repulsion or, a, or being uh, finding what is false. Revolting. I don't want that. Those two are the reality of engaging the word. It will happen. You're drawn to more of truth and you find uh, what is evil more revolting than you did before. This is the natural outcome of engaging the word. You long for it more and more and more. This, This is what comes. And what we have in verse 104, it describes that process. He literally is, that's his point. I'm gaining understanding through your precepts and that is drawing me. And as a result of that, I am increasingly hating everything that is evil, everything that is sinful, everything that is an opposition to your way. You see how it works? That is the process. As I draw near through the word, I grow in in an increased dislike disfavor in my mind for what's evil, what's wrong, what's vain. So 103 describes again the sweetness of the word and 104 describes the process of the word shaping your taste. What is it that you long for? What is it that you desire? What is it that you dream about when you can or daydream of? What, what is that? For a believer that knows the Lord, for a believer that is growing in this particular area, it is increasing in your understanding of who God is through the word. As you engage it, you long for more. You long to know Jesus better as you grow in your understanding of the word. And again, Verse 101, it reminds us we must engage in this process of following in the word, which in turn protects us, it keeps us from evil. One of the most difficult truths for us, I think, as believers to wrap our minds around is that our God, his word, and his truth are all better than the evil and false way that surrounds us every day. And folks, I'm not talking about a life of drug addiction or alcoholism or immorality. I'm talking about, for so many believers, attitude. Look at where our nation is heading. Look at my job scenario. Look at my horrible neighbors. Look at my rascally family or children or in-laws, right? Or fill in the blank. Folks, in truth, those attitudes make up the evil way that's all around us. And it doesn't matter who you are here today, you struggle with those attitudes. I struggle with those attitudes. You know what protects me from those? The Word. God's Word has the power to shape and alter and transform those wrong, false attitudes. Our world is enticing us with that. My boys have been giggling at a commercial that has popped up several times as we've watched football over the last couple days. The commercial finishes with, have it your way, right? Folks, to be honest with you, think that through for a minute. Is there more, is there a more worldly, is there a more worldly 
false way than have it your way. It assumes your way is the right way. And for a commercial where they're advertising something that they want you to want, well, yeah, that your way is the right way. Hopefully your mouth is watering right now and go get one of these, you know. But in truth, that is not what God calls us to, my way. God calls us to his way. God calls us to his word. And the psalmist here rejoices in the joy that is found in knowing God and knowing him through his word. And he literally says, it far exceeds the best honey. It far exceeds this delicacy that I love. You fill in the blank for you. For some of you, it's a, it's a really good steak. For some of you, it's a dairy queen, right? A blizzard that's really loaded down with the extra stuff, which they're really struggling with these days. <laughs> Not that I have experience in that either. But the truth is, God's word is better than all of that. And so many times as we approach the word, is that how we think of it? This is better than my favorite. But we should. It's how we should engage the word. It's how we should think about the word. So, again, as we approach 2023, I want, to approach, I want us to approach it with this in mind. You and I, we can endure through the word. Through the enduring power of the word in our lives. We can endure in this coming year. I want you to consider for just a moment some of the greatest men in our history and their perception of the word. George Washington was quoted as saying, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. John Quincy Adams said, So great is my veneration of the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove useful citizens of their country and respectful members of society. Through reading the Bible. Charles Dickens said, The New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. Dickens on books was a pretty good you know, source. Andrew Jackson, he says, that book, sir, is the rock on which our republic is built. And there's no political intent in that in my mind. It's this, that for leaders down through history, those who understood God's word understood the value even in leading other people. Woodrow Wilson this quote is saying, I ask every man and woman in the audience that from this day on they will realize that part of the destiny of America lies in their daily perusal of this great book. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. Amen. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Douglas MacArthur said, believe me, sir, Never a night goes by, be I ever so tired, but I read the word of God before I go to bed. Herbert Hoover said, the whole of the inspiration of our civilization springs from the teachings of Christ and the lessons of the prophets. To read the Bible for these fundamentals is a necessity of life. Dwight Eisenhower said, To read the Bible is to take a trip to a fair land where the spirit is strengthened and faith recovered. 
The Bible seems to be pretty significant in the minds of some of these leaders in history. So how will you engage the Bible this year? Truthfully, do you even have time to engage the Bible this year? I don't know if you knew, but do you realize it takes 70 hours and 40 minutes to read the Bible from cover to cover at a pulpit rate? 70 hours and 40 minutes. You say, yeah, well, that's crazy. That's, you know, more than a really long week of work, right? It takes 52 hours and 20 minutes to read just the Old Testament. It takes 18 hours and 20 minutes to read just the New Testament. The longest book in the Old Testament is Psalms. It takes 4 hours, 28 minutes to read that. In the New Testament is the Gospel of Luke. 2 hours and 43 minutes to read that. So, as you can see, how could anyone possibly have time for that? Well, I want you to think with me for just a moment. In one calendar year, you have 52 weeks. It would take you reading 81 and a half minutes a week to read through your Bible. Do you realize giving yourself one day break, six days a week, if you read 15 minutes a day, you would read through your entire Bible. One day. Take one day off, read six days, 15 minutes. Read through your Bible. Over the past couple of years, as I've challenged our church over and over and over and over again with this truth, and I do it every single year, every single year, uh, and I will do it every single year as long as I have the opportunity to stand up here. I will do it every year, and I'll tell you why. Because for so many of you, the greatest transformation that you have personally experienced, it's not from church. It's not from Graceway. It's that you have started really for the first time in your life to truly engage the Word. You've never done it before. You didn't know how. But by God's grace, you've learned and you've grown and you're engaging the word in a way that you never have before. And it is shaping the way you think about God. As I've challenged our church with that over and over, do you know how many times somebody has come back to me and said, I tried that this year. I did that. Or, I read through the Bible for the first time in my Christian life. I've never read through the Bible before. That is a blessing that I cannot even put into words. And God continues to shape us, shape His people through the Word. And so once again, I challenge you this year, in the coming year, what will you do with the word? How will you engage the word? You need it, there's no doubt. I need it, there's no doubt. But we need to have a plan for how we'll engage it. I tell you this every year. On our website, you can go to resources. Underneath resources, there are Bible reading plans. There are 26 of them. I'm not telling you to read through your entire Bible this year. What I'm telling you is make a plan. Make a plan to read something in your Bible this year. And for some of you, your habit over time has kind of been, um, you will read maybe a devotional book and it'll have some scripture along with it. I challenge you, not, not that that's bad or evil, certainly, but I challenge you, put that aside and just engage the word. Make a plan for how you'll just engage the word this year. There are 26 plans on our website. Some of them are, all, are, are, are the whole Bible. Some of them are the whole Bible in three years or two years. 
It doesn't matter how long it takes you. Take as long as you'd like or as short as you'd like. Some of them are 90-day plans. Some of them are one-month plans. Some of them are the Psalms. Some of them are the New Testament, the Old Testament, a, a prophet, a, a gospel, a, an epistle, all on the same day. And you kind of read through that way. Go look and choose something. Make a plan. Listen to me. If you will, God will use that in your life this year. I promise you. As you engage the word, God will shape you through it. It is the way he works. You and I desperately, desperately need the word. And God will give you grace to endure in this coming year as you engage his word. Now, for us as human beings, it's not natural. You want to know why? Because we get up in the morning and we think, I'm too busy. As we go to bed at night, we think, I'm too busy. I don't have time. So we need grace. So let's bow and ask God to give us grace to engage the word in this coming year. Let's pray together.